0: Uh, so i are going to set the scene of this passage real quick. If you were here last week, you know that Paul helped plant a church in this island called Crete. And in typical Paul fashion, he helps plant this church with this guy named Titus, and then he like dips, and he leaves the church to Titus to like take care of. And I imagine, it's not in the Bible, but I imagine that he was kind of anxiously like inquiring about how the church was doing, uh, because Crete... Was known as like a wild place Like it was like this little island But it had this reputation for like being like almost like a party island like, like legit It's like Wheaton College Like it's partied there You know what I'm saying That's all they did That's all they were known for Right and, and I think Paul was almost like scared And just constantly asking how the church was And it's believed that he eventually got a report That church was dealing with some issues And some of those issues, two of those main issues were that they were dealing with false prophets or teachers who were coming in and telling them something different than the gospel. But they're also dealing with just the general culture around the church, the creed culture. And what Paul, I think, is doing in this chapter is he's trying to make it very clear to them to this very young, vulnerable church, that, that there is this false ethic or, or ideology that you are facing as a church, that, that there's this culture, there's these practices and activities that, that, you're, that, you're, that you're experiencing that's actually hindering your ability to live up to the call that Christ has given you as your Savior. At the end of chapter 1, he, like, calls out these false prophets, calls them out for some of the laws that they were saying would help save you, but mostly for living two-faced lives. He was calling out these guys and saying, y'all are hypocrites for the most part, and you're in the church. And so he starts today our passage specifically by by trying to drill in their head uh, that they must recognize the church as believers, we have our own ethic. You know what I'm saying? Like we have our own code that, that we've been called to a gospel-centered life that is radically different than a Cretan culture and a culture that the false teachers were telling them. Does that, does that make sense? Like, like if you are here today and you have said, I'm going to designate myself as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, Paul's saying, okay. But with that comes a submission to the law of the Lord. Like, like that's, that's a part of it. That's a part of it. And so for Paul, what he wants us to understand is that in a lot of ways, we have become slaves to a master. I use the CSB version for the passage. Uh, the ESV says, bondservant in verse 10. I use CSB, which is like a sin in beloved. Like, we love you. I don't know why. We love we here. But I, like, went against the grain. Because Paul means slave. He means slave here. And he also means slave throughout the New Testament, whenever he calls himself a slave of Christ. That's what he's saying, that we have bonded ourselves to the Lord, and as a, he, him as our master, now directs our life. And so he's trying to hammer this idea in their heads in chapter 2. And I I think it's important for us even today as a church because there are so many things now, right, that are vying for our attention. I'll put it a different way. There are so many things now in our culture that are wrestling and, and trying to convince us to be the blueprint for how we live our lives. There are so many things that are saying, hey, if you... Uh, If you work here, if you go to school here, if you live here, you should look like this. You should vote like this. You should say this. You should not say that. There's so many ideologies in our culture that are constantly trying to say, follow our set of rules and and you'll be good. You'll be happy. Does that make sense? Do Do you feel it when you, like, leave this, like, the competing ideologies every day in your life? that are telling you what it actually looks like to be accepted or to be good? And so Paul's trying to address that. It is the same thing for this young church. And so the way I see it, Paul actually uses the rest of the ten verses that we read today to explain what specifically he thinks this objective Christian ethic should look like. this makes sense? I'm using words like ideology, and I'm using a lot of fancy words, you know, I learned it in New York when I was there. They taught me some new words. I'm trying to instill. So bear with me. Um, and so he goes into details about what exactly this reality should look like, and some of those details are a little bit uncomfortable. And unfortunately, at times, where the Christian life is un- is uncomfortable. And if it wasn't, I would Loki. I would ask for a raise like a long time ago. You know what I'm saying? But I realize I can't because sometimes you don't have any money, and the Christian life is uncomfortable. Right? And, and I think for us, we want to lean into our questions. And you'll see that more as I go on. We want to lean into our question and say, what exactly is Paul trying to say here? So like I said, I'm trying to keep my sermon short, simple, a little bit more serious. But let's talk about this lifestyle informed by the gospel of Christ that Paul is calling the church in Crete and I think the church in Chicago uh, to live. And so here we go. Uh, Like many of you guys, when I read this passage again this week, I actually had a lot of questions that came up. The two general questions I had were, what exactly is Paul saying? What exactly is he saying? And and why is he saying? it? And those two things will kind of drive the rest of our sermon. Um, And I know, like I said, this is controversial. I know there's a lot of thoughts I won't go into all the details. I won't really go line by line, but I'm open to a conversation afterwards. You can email me if you have questions or complaints um, at alex.spears, S-P-I-E-R-S, at the Beloved Church. Okay, anyways. Um, So I read this passage many times. Um, I'm trying to find it now. I can't find it on this iPad. Here we go. Again, in Titus 2, starting in verse 2 talks about older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith, love, and endurance. Older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not slaves to excessive drinking, to teach what is good. And they may encourage young women to love their husbands, love their children, to be self-controlled, pure workers at home, kind, in submission to their husbands so God's word will be slandered, will not be slandered, sorry. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Do you notice a theme here? It's almost like Paul is saying that for the church specifically in Crete, that what they have forgotten is that a major component of faithful gospel living, a major component of a Christian ethic we're supposed to live, is what? Self-control. Self-restraint. You might be wondering, okay, self-control or self-restraint from what? Well, we see in verse 3, we see an explicit example. It says self-restraint from not being slanders or slaves to Excessive drinking. In verse 10, talks about self-restraint from not tucking back or stealing. And so he has some explicit examples, but I think he also has some implicit examples. And it's tough because we don't all know the context, the culture this was in, so it's hard for us to recognize that, that part of the reason I believe Paul tells older men to be uh, worthy of respect and sensible in verse 2, because a lot of these men were the same men who were perpetuating false teachings and were being hypocrites in the church. And part of the reason I think he's telling uh, young women to be self-controlled, to uh, love your children, your husband to submit to them is because a lot of these women were abandoning their familial responsibilities to pursue their own self-promotion and honestly, sexual promiscuity. And scholars believe that this is part of what Paul is saying because the Cretans, once again, were known for this kind of thing. Like they were a culture built on Satisfying whatever self-desires you had at whatever cost. Does that make sense? And so what part of what Paul is saying is that that is leaking into the church. Well, now all of you are lacking self-control, and you think the greatest thing you can do is gratify whatever appetite you have, no matter what the cost is. And so you, you can almost sense it. It's so different almost like in Galatians. where you're In Galatians, he's like, there's no Jew, right? There's no Greek, no man, woman, no slave, free, black, white. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's like, there's nothing, right, in Christ Jesus. Because in, in, in Galatians, they had almost too many rules about what it meant to be saved. He said, no, no, you're free. But in Crete, he's like, y'all need some rules, right? Because you guys are, you guys are cr- making yourself and your desires to ultimate authority, but instead you are called in a Christian ethic to give up the very things you often want, be willing to submit to whatever or whoever God might be calling you in a season to submit to for the gratification of others and so that his glory and his name is made great. And so for us, I don't think that it's simply about perpetuating a certain traditions or certain cultures. I do personally believe that at least to a degree what Paul is saying is that you have to understand that we are called to be like Christ. And he had to deny what felt good, what felt right, and carry his cross, submit to the Lord, fall on his knees, and say, not my will, but your will be done. Paul's saying that, that is an ideology that must drive the Christian church. Back then, and I would say also today, Okay, what time is it? And so I think Paul is simply, to a degree, trying to explain that this is what a Christian life looks like in a culture that is saying the complete opposite. And so I'm going to move a little bit into why I think Paul is saying that. I just have three reasons, three points, and then we'll be done. And so the first point is this. This gospel life is meant to be witness. This gospel life is meant to be witness. What do I mean by that? When I go back to verse 1, he says, what? But you are to proclaim. But you are to proclaim. Let's just stop there for a second. This is why I like reading the Bible sometimes. It, it makes things that seem complicated kind of simple at times, right? And it's almost like Paul is just starting off saying, uh, you, Titus, and you, the church, what you are supposed to do is proclaim. Proclaim what, right? Well, in light of what we've been saying, that they've been living among probably friends, coworkers, uh, neighbors who have who have a culture of self-indulgence, he's saying you are to proclaim to them there is another way to live. That's what I think he's saying. You are to proclaim to them that there is another life that is more satisfying than what you've been doing. Like, Like that's what the church is supposed to do. Share the good news of the gospel and the life that comes from it. So simple, right? Like, like that's what we're called to do. And one of the key purposes of even this assembly of believers and people together is so that we can declare both to those who might need a reminder, but ultimately to declare to those who have never heard or have never understood the good news of Jesus Christ from Nazareth, that his life, death, and resurrection gives them a power to live a life so different than what they've been living before. Like, like That's part of what our call is as a church. So chapter 2 starts with Paul saying the church should be evangelistic, should bring others into the fold. The church should proclaim, Right? And then he says that proclamation should be consistent with sound teaching. Should proclaim, and it should be consistent with sound teaching. And so we talked a little bit right in the beginning already. Uh, I think when he says sound teaching is the ethic, right, of self-denial that we see throughout the rest of the passage. And so the way I'm reading it is, he's saying your proclamation should be consistent with this life ethic. Does that make sense? Your proclamation should be consistent with this gospel life. Sound teaching is sound living, and they should be one and the same. Uh, So talk ain't worth that much to Paul, right? To him, uh, there cannot be a bifurcation between behavior and belief. Bifurcation, oh, that's a good one. I like that word. And so I think we have to be, uh, remember that we often have the temptation to be like whitewashed tombs, right? Like families that hide their dirty laundry in the cabinets when people come over. I don't know any families like that, but I heard that <laughs> people. You know, I was like, like, that's the temptation we need to fight against. Like, like we could tell our co workers about our testimony of Christ. But we have to couple that with our life that displays his power. Right? That's right. L- like we, I, off the notes a little bit, which is dangerous, but I think we have this temptation as Christians. We want to like read our Bible alone. We want to like pray alone. If we worship, like worship in our closet. Like, like we are Christians like in secret. I think there's this. This question I have, like, is it not when we worship God in front of others, people will be like, wow, they're so joyful about what they—they can't even hold it in right now. Isn't that a true witness? Isn't it when we, like, are so desperate to hear from Him or reading the Word or we're praying in front of others, people be like, wow, they must really believe that God will answer them, right? Paul? Himself would go into the most influential public centers, and that's where he would do his like Christian ministry. That's where he would worship, that's where he would sing his songs. It's where people will be able to see him. And be like, wow, this person truly believes in that God. Maybe I should find out more about who he is. Which brings me to point two. The gospel. Life is meant to be questioned. Gospel life is meant to be questioned. I of this story this week. Um, I mentioned to a lot of you guys, you guys know, I have a Dyson vacuum cleaner now, courtesy of Sung in the back. And it was this moment when I got it or where I saw it where I was like, I'm like really becoming an adult now. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm just off my mom's insurance this year. Like I'm like buying... Grocery, I'm like, wow, I'm really stepping into adulthood. And so, one big move I wanted to do to like solidify my maturation was to get houseplants. Because, like, only adults have houseplants, you know what I'm saying? So, I had some people, even from this church, some people kind of came with me. We went to Lowe's and we picked out um, three houseplants. And within a month, they came back to my house and two of them were already dead. And so, they were asking, they're like, okay, dude, what the heck happened? It's been like a month. And I explained to them, I said, well, I left them outside for, like, a week. I had to leave. I didn't really, like, water them. And, and one of them was like, wait, you left them outside? I was like, yeah. I'm like, don't they, like, need sunlight or something? I don't know. And she's like, uh, plants can't have direct sunlight. And I was like, what? And she said to me, I won't say who it is, um, but Kara said to me, she goes, <laughs> verbatim, she goes, how would you feel if you were left outside all day in the sun? <laughs> I was like, that doesn't even make any sense. I was like, what? <laughs> but, I, but I looked it up, and apparently she, she was right. <laughs> I would feel pretty bad. Like, certain plants, like, they can't handle the direct sunlight. Like, they need, like, indirect or, like, medium, light, like, I don't know what it's called. Like, But they need, like, different kind of light, right? And so I, I felt like literally this week I was looking at my last plant slowly dying, and, and God almost reminded me to the first point of our call as lights to this world. And he reminded me of that fact, where he said, you know, there's people in this world, like I am the sun and I'm so holy that if I were almost in direct contact with them, it actually wouldn't be good. Like I would consume them. And so in some ways we as Christians are actually indirect direct light. Isn't that interesting? Like, in some ways, our job is to reflect, right, the light of the real source of God to the people he's put around us. But regardless, light can be a good thing or a bad thing. Too much of it could literally be, it's crazy to me. Like, the plant will make too much oxygen. I'm like, wait, what? That's great for us, but I guess bad for it. And so I thought about this idea when I say that The gospel life is meant to be questioned. And what I realize is this, that for us, Jesus said, the world will hate you because it hated me first because you expose it. And part of what the gospel life does is it exposes people to the deficiency of their own lifestyle. And their reaction to that often is to question It's a a fight. It's to to go against whatever it is that we are preaching or we are doing, even if it looks good. And Paul says it better than I can. He says in verse 8, at the end he says, right, your message should be sound beyond reproach. Why? Because so that any opponent will be ashamed because he has nothing bad to say. He's saying your Christian life will actually, in a way, almost shame people because they'll be so amazed that you actually with integrity can live a certain way that they think they actually cannot live. And so Paul is saying you will be questioned. Your gospel life should be questioned. They will, you will have opponents. And I just thought about this like— I think as Christians, we sometimes get a little bit mixed up about what persecution looks like or what it should look like in our life. And we think it's all about, once again, what we're proclaiming. Like, if something happens in the news, we should, if we tweet this to stand up for the truth, if we tweet that, and fa- like, people might get mad at us, and that's persecution. But when I think about Jesus and his life, a lot of the things he was persecuted for was not just what he said, but what he did. Right? Like he healed people on the Sabbath and they were like, that's against our rules to heal and love those kind of people on this specific day. He sat with certain people and they're like, uh, why would you sit with people who have been outlawed by our society? He was condemned for his lifestyle. Are, are we? For our, not for the little quips we put on twitter for our lifestyle Do people say to us dude why do you hang out with that that was weird like why would you do dude why wouldn't you just like go out with us like tonight and like this like, why why can't you just like put out this one time it's not a big deal do we get persecuted for our lifestyle do we la- we do we love the wrong people do we love so radically and so all the time that people are like questioning us because if not, then the question is what, is, what is wrong? What is off? Because the God we serve is always trying to draw us away from, from the blinders that this culture puts over our eyes to a greater truth, to himself. And I'm telling you, when you get to God, it's always different than you think it's going to be. And every time you get to him, it's different than it was before. He just likes to do the unexpected. He will use the poor to shame the rich. He will use the weak to shame the strong. That's that's how God operates. He uses a small shepherd boy to be the greatest king. You you get how God is. And so when you serve him, your life will be like that. And people should be saying, what is wrong with you? Why are you so weird? Why do you do that? They should question you. They They should seek to understand who is this God you're saying you serve? And Paul is saying, that is part of why I'm calling you to this gospel-guided life. And I love how he ends. He said, they're going to feel shame because they have nothing, like, left to say. Which brings me to my last point, which is simply this. The gospel life is meant to be attractive. It's meant to be attractive. Attractive. In verse 10, Paul says at the end, after one of the hardest, in my opinion, um, teachings about slaves, once again, not simply doing what is always best for them even, like stealing or talking back, but in some way, I would say through the guidance of the Lord, witnessing to even their master's by being willing to listen to God in their life. And he says this, do this so that you, so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. So that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. I read a version I like kind of better. It says, so that they may be attracted to God, our Savior. And I love that. It's a weird thing to kind of end with. That Paul says, if you live this life I'm talking about, where you're at your feet in front of God and asking Him, what does it look like for me to be a witness, even if I have to give up what I want? What does it look like for me? He's saying that people will see that. They will watch you. They're going to watch that. People are going to question that. And in the end, a lot of them will actually be attracted to that. Isn't that crazy? That's what he's saying. That almost in the midst of their questioning, as they look closer and closer, they will realize they have nothing left to say. That the life that through the power of God you are able to live is greater. Like, do we believe that? Because if we did, we would welcome the questions. Because we know at the end of that tunnel for many people, they will find that the answer is Christ is the way. Christ is the way. And so we are saying that the gospel life is actually meant to be attractive. that people should eventually look at you and say, you know what? I actually want to be like you. I actually want to know about that God that you serve. You know, actually, I think mean, I will come to that small group. Maybe I will check out that trip because there's something about your life. There's there's something going on, and I questioned it. I didn't. I wasn't sure at first, but the more and more I look at it, there's something there. That's the life Paul's saying that we are called uh, to live. Uh, I want to end with this. Like I was saying, I was in New York with some friends um, from Wheaton. And we were having uh, a pretty sobering conversation. And we were just talking about a lot of the people we knew from uh, uh, college, our years, uh, who no longer would consider themselves Christians. And we were just kind of talking about this. And as we were talking about this, my heart was getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And I was, like, making this, uh, this vow to myself that when I came home, I would actually call uh, one of my friends who I know is no longer a Christian and just talk to them. And I was thinking about almost this, this three-step, like this pathway of faith that Paul gives us, where I said, you know, I'm going to present the gospel, let them see it. I'm going to invite them to ask questions. You know, I have a theology degree. I can handle some, you know, questions. I'm going to, I'm going to hope that at the end they'll see, wow, this actually is very attractive. And that's that's kind of the thought I had. And when I got home, God kind of convicted me another way. And I felt like he was asking me, when's the last time this pathway has happened in your own life? And is it possible, that this is actually a cycle of faith that for us as believers, we're actually called to witness again and again the life and message of Jesus Christ to go so close that we begin to even have questions and even have doubts. But to be so steadfast in our pursuit of God that we actually see him and are attracted to him again. And what I mean is this, for me, I'll just be honest with you guys, if I have doubts or questions, I push them aside. If I'm wrestling with something that I'm not quite sure, I, put it over there. I compartmentalize really well. I oftentimes don't even like reading the Bible anymore because honestly, when you study theology, you like think you know everything. I mean, I already know what it says. And so there's a few times that I'm like, let me open this book again. Let me actually once again see, witness what God is like, what this holy life he's telling me to live looks like. And when inevitably it's uncomfortable, let me actually ask questions. Let me seek and begin to knock and beg the Lord to show up in my life so that I would actually be attracted to him. Not not to this Christianity, the church form, not to this Christianity that we have in our mind, but to the the real presence of God. And that's often what it takes. Wrestling questioning, falling on your knees, begging, knocking, seeking, asking again and again and again, and then he will show up. And then you'll remember, oh, this is why I've decided to follow Jesus. And I'm telling you guys, if you think you can live this Christian ethic on your own, you're going to fail. And no one will be attracted to this church or to the gospel at all. But when you have had a real encounter with the Lord, you have no choice but to change. And people will come to you and say, what is different about you? And isn't it amazing that that's what Christ did? Like like the goal isn't for us to try our hardest to be perfect. Like, Like our greatest witness is actually saying we're not perfect. Like I'm weak. I love to indulge the things I want. Like that's who I naturally am. But in God's grace, through God's power, he's beginning to change me. That's the greatest witness we have. And that's the reminder in all of this that I think even Paul wants us to remember is that gospel life is attractive. Because Christ our Savior has died for us. And in his power has changed us.